We're in a series called Your Best Life. And um, the subtitle is kind of what we're after here, an alternative vision. This idea of your best life is prominent in our world, in our culture at least. What does it mean to live your best life, to live your best life? Now, this is a topic of discussion for really for all, all time, but it's been crystallized in this pithy little phrase, your best life. Am I living my best life? And there's a lot of assumptions wrapped up in that idea. There's a lot of assumptions about what it means to be human. There's a lot of assumptions about what it means to love. There's a lot of assumptions uh, about really where you, um, how you make sense of how to live out your day to day. And so we are kind of asking the question of Jesus. Jesus, you say you came to give us life and life abundantly. The scriptures say you came to give us life and life to the full. The scriptures kind of speak to this idea of we can embody in some way, even though we're not there yet, into the life of heaven. We can sort of live the life of heaven, who we are hardwired to be. One very famous uh, saint uh, from the third century said, uh, the glory of God is man fully alive. It's people like leaning into who they are. This, this brings God great joy. And so we're asking the question about who God, what does God say about us? What does God say about who we are becoming? About community? About mission? Are we living our best life missionally? Are we living our best life in community? What does it mean to operate with, with power and not just in our own strength? We just spent two weeks on the gospel. Like we have to, we have to know our story. And know the story that we find ourselves in. And then uh, we're going to do two weeks now on identity. And so this week, I want to talk, just kind of give us an overview and talk a little bit about names. Because identity and names are actually uh, inexplicit, in, inexplicably bound up together. Strong intro, Andrew. Way to go. Inexplicably, in, I can't do it. Bound up together. When I, if I were to ask you, some, this would be a sort of weird question, like, hey, how you doing? Great. Who are you? You give me your name, like your first name, that's who I am. What are you about? What do you do? When we answer the question on like an Instagram profile or a Twitter profile or some sort of essay that we need to write, some way we need to articulate who we are, in our culture, we do something different than the culture that we find in the scriptures. And in fact, if some of you come from, uh, maybe you don't come from the West, in particular, if you are from uh, some sort of Asian background, you actually still know a bit of the, how powerful the family name is. Who you are is bound up in your family name. We actually want to distance ourselves from our history here in the West, distance ourselves often from our families, even if they're good. Who you are has nothing to do with my family name. Who I am is what I do and what I desire, how I make money. My computer is slowly sinking. And so I want to talk a little bit about this. I want to talk a bit about how we think about our identity. Let me pray for us.
Lord, I just, I, I sense. <laughs> I sense, Lord, your word is gonna hit a nerve, hopefully a good one. So I just, I pray, Lord, for those, um, Lord, who, when it comes to the topic of identity, there's just a lot of vulnerability. It's probably the, it's probably for all of us. And so I pray, Lord, just, um, I pray your spirit would just speak, speak strong and speak tenderly like it so often does. And I, I lift up those who, um, are feeling a bit apathetic and despondent. Lord, I pray for vulnerability this morning. I pray for those that are, I don't know, maybe they already feel like they know where the, the message is going and that yes, of course, I'm this and that's great. Lord, would your spirit work in ways that my words can't to provoke and upend that we may become more the people you created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We all live from a core truth, one writer says. We all live our lives out of core truths. There's something true about us. Every action we take has a sense of identity behind it, whether or not we are aware of it. So one question to you this morning, if you're taking notes, is what is identical about you in every situation? It's really hard to pin down. It usually starts a bit shallow. I'm always sort of this, I'm always sort of happy, I'm always sort of grumpy, I'm always sort of whatever it may be. And then it will start to work its way down to something much more fundamental. What's the same about you in every situation? One way to say it might be this, what is the truest thing about you? People invest a lot of money in counseling to get at this question. What is the thing underneath the thing underneath the thing, if there is such, or what is more likely the cocktail of things that has shaped who I am? When we were in the process of um, uh, becoming foster parents, uh, we learned so much about what happens in those first few years of child development. The more and more we understand and are seeing patterns and recognizing how the brain works, and the more and more we study kids in that first, in particular, zero to three, but really up until seven, but that zero to three, they are finding all sorts of things like basically the sum of who you are is for the most part all been kind of made sense of in those first couple of years. Now your first kickback would be obviously, look, well, well, no, I didn't know how to do this. I didn't, wasn't shaped by this. But what they're getting at is basically your propensities, so much of how you're wired. And they, they, they are able to gauge this, right, with trauma. When you see this sort of trauma or when you see this sort of comforting environment, literally down to like you were able to touch mom and have like skin to skin contact a lot for those first three years. They're like, there seems to be this in terms of health. Some of you know this all too, like all too much. There's something about our core identity, who we are that's underneath all of this, which makes sense of why throughout most of history, almost all of history up until Andy Crouch makes the argument up until about 1900, that when it came to who you are and what you're about, it was linked to your name and your family. It's like it was understood without any science, without any sense of understanding. It was like, well, this is the operating system in so many ways of what it means to be human is the family system. You're a part of that tribe and those people and you had that dad. They recognize that that stuff shaped you in fundamental ways that in some sense you don't really get away from. When you ask someone in our culture today who they are, 
we get something very different than a name. We tend to find it in one of three places or a combo. One is what we do, what we have, and what we desire. So what we do, simply being our career, our craft, that's how we find meaning, which makes so much sense. If you spent so much money and so many years becoming a medical professional, and then you're killing it at your work, one of the things that's going to come up, and who am I? I'm a doctor. It's all right. But being a doctor is not the truest thing about you. What do we have? A lot of people that garner their identity really basically from what they have, from money, from possessions, a bunch of things that are given to us that are outside of our control. Things like good looks, like if you're the best looking person in the room, you know some folks who are just shaped. Maybe that's you, you've had a temptation for a long time, you're shaped by that. Like I know I look good in that dress. I always look good in that dress and that dress and the ugly dress, I always look good in that one too. And you recognize that that's not just like, I am proud and I have positive body image. All of a sudden, sometimes that stuff starts to seep in, right? Goes a little deeper than just, I am confident in who I am. It's like, no, this is actually something about you. It feeds vanity and pride. And all of a sudden, when that goes away, was it Foster Wallace? I read this quote last week. Like, you will die a thousand deaths as you slowly age. You're not going to be pretty forever. Welcome to church. <laughs> Maybe you're charming. You're great at, I don't know, social media. You're not the most attractive. You grew up without a dad. You have a disability. You have a difficulty. There's something about you that, like, it just has shaped who you are. And so your identity, whether positive or negative, your identity has gotten all bound up in a lot of that stuff, stuff that's outside your control. So it's difficult when we root so much of our identity on what we do or what we have. And lastly, what we desire. However I want to express myself, there are no boxes. This is who I love, how I love, and that becomes the, the, the central part of who we are and what it means to be human. It's very interesting to touch on like a, maybe a, a hard subject for f- folks, but I was reading recently an uh, article about just sort of gender fluidity and the LGBTQ community, and it's fascinating how many folks uh, who are Gen Z advocates within that community are are going in the opposite direction that the first generation of LGBTQ advocates went. The first generation was, this is who we are. Don't take away who we are. And you actually have a new generation of advocates in this community going, this is not who we are. We are human. We are not going to be defined by our sexuality. These aren't like Christian kids. Like there's a recognition that there's a, even a dead end to however entrenched and important your perspective or, or uh, your desires are and where you aim them. Problem is you're forming your identity in any one of these categories or whatever cocktail of them around moving parts. You can lose your job. Your creativity made you well up. And when you fall or you stop doing it, you end up losing yourself. Oh my gosh, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't ever hear someone say that. That's just a marker that your identity is wrapped up in that thing. We're a bundle of conflicted desires and every soul is a complex mix of these desires, sexual desire, emotional desire. And they all conflict, right? Because like we, we, we want this and we want this for ourselves. I want a great body. I have this like part of who I am and yet need donuts exists. Right? Like I, I, I so desperately want to like be a loving person it comes up a lot in our day and age where people want to signal how virtuous they are. 
when they want to acknowledge, I care about this social cause. I post up about this all the time, right? And then you probably know folks like this. And you get into the, what is your sphere of influence? Oh, what are you doing? You must be caring. You post so much about X. You must at least be caring for the homeless in this way or giving your time here, or giving your money here. And we all know that there's often a gap between what we desire and who we want to be and who we actually are. This is just sort of naming just reality, right? And so we see that even our own desires are in conflict with one another. Now, the idea that identity was wrapped up in a new name or like a family name, I have always loved this. I've loved this. And you guys have heard me talk about it when I make jokes about Mook's wear Converse. Mook is my last name if you're new to this. Like, this is how we roll. I'll make these sort of funny jokes, but I've loved this. Anybody uh, go through the painstaking process of trying to name your children? Some of you, it's not painstaking. You're like, what are the most popular names? And go. Or some of you, it's like, what are the most unpopular names? Like, right, it says a lot about your personality. Or some of you are like, I'm gonna be so unconventional with my names. I, I was served a coffee from this really amazing woman this morning, uh, and her name was Starry. Cool. I'm making a lot of assumptions about mom and dad. Some of them are great, and <laughs> some of them are confusing. Hey, Starry. Like, there's something about the names. We have, a, like, these big stories about our names. I just wanted everything to have meaning. It's just how I'm wired. Everything needs to be fantastical. It needs to be charmed. and needs to be romantic. And it's a problem, really. But um, I live a very charmed life in my head. Uh, my best man said at my wedding, he said uh, in his best man speech, did you ever get the impression, or no, he said to my wife, as we're getting married, in this speech, and he goes, Corey, I'm so glad you're here. Now someone else can hear the cinematic soundtrack that's always going on inside of Andrew's head. Now someone else can hear it too. I say that in that when it came to naming Harper, my firstborn, we didn't know how to, we were gonna, who we were, how, what the name was gonna be, didn't have any leads. Corey had a couple that she was like, I think we're gonna be settled on this. I could tell she's just trying to like push that into me a little bit. And then we were taking care of somebody in our community who was going through a very, very, very difficult season. Uh, very difficult. And um, God, uh, we had an open uh, room in our apartment and we set it up for her and we, we said, you need to come and live with us for a while. And this is right when Corey was pregnant. So in the process, one night we're having some late night conversation, talking with her, praying with you, her, goofing around. And she goes, man, if I had a kid, I've always wanted to name that kid Harper. And so Corey and I go, it's a good, you know, quietly, we just look at each other like, that's a good one. I hadn't thought about that, nor did I know it was such a popular name. It was one of those annoying things. Like, then, like everybody, you meet like 20 Harpers. Anyway, we ended up uh, asking her, could we, name, could we name Harper this? And she was like, oh my gosh, that would be honored, and da 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 da. So, in other words, we didn't just steal this name from this poor girl. Just wanted to be clear. But for us, the whole situation was marked by hospitality. Now, when you name somebody, and when you name a kid, you are, just to be honest, it's not a bad thing, you're projecting something into them. And so I had the sense of, man, Harper is going to be like just a, like a queen, a powerhouse when it comes to radical hospitality. I'm speaking this over. I didn't even look up what the name Harper means. I always like hate those cards. They like change, I feel like, every week, like what your name means. Sorry if your name means something really epic. And I just was like, this is what this means to us. So I'm projecting this. And then Keller came along. So that was like a great story. Our second born came along. And Keller's story was all wrapped up. I've shared a little bit about this on Sunday. We didn't think we could even have kids. Doctors told us we couldn't at all. Keller comes along. There was 
somebody who was praying for us, Sia. Uh, some of you know Sia as part of the Eastside team. Uh, just a really incredible story of her giving a permission to pray for another biological child, even as we are preparing to adopt. And so her, Ro, Rowan, my second born, her middle name is Sia. But the name Rowan came from a random text from someone I hadn't heard from in years. I don't know if you have anybody in your life like this where they text you like every two years or so, you get a random text or call. And this is from like, and we were never even close friends. I don't even know how this person has my number. But they will call, and they're kind of a John the Baptist type, and they'll call me and they'll just say, hey man, just thinking of you, praying for you. It's somebody I knew from like way, way back in like church camp days. So I get a random text. This person was not saved on my phone. I think they changed their number, or I just never saved it. And I get a text, this guy named Travis, and he texts me, and I just say, hey man, felt, woke up this morning, felt compelled to pray for you. Just hope all is well. Oh, what a nice text. P.S., is there somebody named Rowan in your life? That name kept coming up like I was supposed to pray for somebody. Like, Rowan. Well, we found out the next day or two days later we were pregnant. So we're like, maybe that's who we were supposed to pray for. Right? Like, oh my gosh. Like, I just was like, this is amazing. And from God, and this is prophetic. And Sia had like kind of prayed. I felt her into existence. And now this is prophetic word. So I just had this like vision of like, Rowan's going to be prophetic. This is amazing. God gave her these names. So I had all this stuff, and I'm projecting these things in. So sure enough, Harper is, is so hospitable. And Rowan is like definitely got all the attitude and like fire of a prophet, just based on her two-and-a-half-year-old personality. It's just all fire all the time. And then Keller comes along, and I'm like, God, we are two for two. I can't believe we can even have another child. This is amazing. I am, like, so unbelievably blessed. Obviously, God's going to give us, like, some other name. It's going to descend, like, in the middle of church while I'm preaching. It's going to appear in the window up there. It's going to be epic. Nothing, 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 nothing. Corey is in labor, and we had had this name Keller kicking around because she just liked how it sounded. Corey is not, doesn't really care as much about the meaning behind the name. She's like, I just like that name. And so I'm there. As she's in labor, I'm looking up my phone like, oh, what's the definition of Keller? Maybe there's some other name. Like she's, she's, it was like a break. She was like sleeping for a minute. She wasn't like pushing the baby out and I'm looking at my phone. But I'm like there just going, Keller, Keller, Keller. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And it hit me. God hadn't given us a name. He didn't give us his name. This name just sort of came to us as like an ordinary name. And then I was thinking like, well, Keller, Tim Keller is one of like my favorite, like, pastors and so maybe it's it was sort of after like Tim Keller's the one he's like an evangelist and he brings people home and normal people this doesn't even make sense to you because in my head it's like a little convoluted but I had this whole thing that just sort of I just made up because I had to have something I had to have some sort of charmed name I it had to mean and it does it started to mean something and now sure enough Keller is this like quiet strength she just sleeps a lot and she's a really big baby Rowan is really really fiery Harper's sort of hospitable as much as a six-year-old can be hospitable but we project these things into people but what I've realized is that for all the meaning I want to attach to a name for all the ways I just want to you will be this what I've realized is the more and more I get to know them, where this Harper name is just sort of disconnected, this Rowan name is disconnected, this Keller name especially disconnected. But my goodness, the more and more and more, I'm like, hey, Keller, hey, Keller, a little squishy baby. Rowan, row, row. Harper now, because she, she and I are ridiculous, we call each other names like Peapod and Corn Tusk, and we're just weirdos. But like Harpy, Harpo, the more and more I, I, I'm, I'm talking to my kids 
The more and more we're, we are interacting, the more and more I hear daddy and dad. There's millions of dads around the world. But when she says daddy to me, there is intimacy. There's a bunch of Harpers and Harpers just for whatever she may become or may not become like around my meaning that I put into her name, the name Harper and Harpy and Harpo. Any bit of you who interact with friends or loved ones and you have nicknames for them or sweetie or whatever it is, it's so interesting how there's just intimacy that starts to pile up. Intimacy and connection. The names take on all of this sort of subconscious, deep meaning and love and beauty. Sometimes you, 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 you get swept up in what was a simple name. All of a sudden, you can't imagine this child being anything else other than that name. When you have a relationship someone, with someone, the more intimate the names that you have with that person become, the deeper it tends to go the more and more that she recognizes this is what it is to be a mook. And I'm not instructing her. I just mean like she knows this environment's safe. She knows that daddy gives her nicknames. She knows my voice. Like there's culture and identity circling around what it means to be Harper or Rowan or Keller, the intimacy that develops. It raises this question for me as I was thinking about this. It's like, who is naming us? Who is naming you? I, 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 I get caught off guard with how all of these, um, <laughs> all the cute names, all the ridiculous names, and all the serious names and how we interact on a day-to-day basis are having some kind of deeper impact into who she's becoming. And so I, I wanna actually invite us for a moment to open up the scriptures and ask this question, like how does God name us? that the God of the universe names us some things. First, God says in Genesis that we are made in the image of God. We are image barriers. We're to represent him in the world. So the question of do I have value is who I am implicitly have value. Yes, you have value and you have purpose. Next, God calls humanity very good. God determines our value, what our worth is. The deep longing we all have to be respected and validated comes from God. Jesus puts his name on us. It says in 1 Peter 4, 16, we praise God that you bear the name. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed and sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Romans 8, 16 says, now spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with him. John 15, 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, I no longer call you servants because the servant does not know his master's business and said, I have called you friends. What you long for is found in the things that Jesus, that, and, uh, that Jesus exemplifies and God says about who we are. He made you. He made you. And he calls you friend. And he calls you co-heirs. He calls you children. And so if you've been around church for a while, you're familiar with some of these, this language. We just sang a song that revolved around much of this Language, And I just want to humbly submit that the more and more we press in and understand and own the reality of this is who God says that you are, it will begin to change you and shape you. 
that the most, the truest thing about you, whatever you've been, uh, whatever you've inherited from family, whatever you've inherited and whatever places that you have allowed questions like what do I desire and how am I, you know, what do I do have sunk into your identity. We have an invitation from God to take seriously who he says that we are. And this requires faith. This requires us to have faith. Tim Keller says, identity is a complex set of layers for we are many things, our occupation, our ethnic identity, etc., are part of who we are, but we assign different values to these components and thus Christian maturing, becoming a mature follower of Jesus is a process in which the most fundamental layer of our identity becomes our self-understanding as a new creature in Christ along with all our privileges in him. When I go to my parents' house, who still live in basically the same house I grew up in, I feel more myself. It's not just because it's nostalgic. The more and more we've settled into our current house, we just moved a year ago, the more and more I feel at home. Some of you don't have that, that luxury. Home is a really difficult place. But for some of us, when we go home, whether it's to our parents' house or the house we live in now, we recognize there's something about the space that reminds us of who we are, of what we're about, of what the most important things are. There's something about our identity and our name and our home life that are bound up together. The more and more we spend time with God, the more and more we are intimate with God, the more and more we have faith that this is who God, what God says about us, the more and more we trust that we can communicate with God in this open and real and incredible way, the more and more we find ourselves shaped by who God says that we are. One other way to maybe get at this in the scriptures there's two sorts of commands in the Bible. One is indicative. Can you say indicative? It's a funny word to repeat out loud. And then there are imperatives in Scripture. Things, things to do. There are commands in Scripture. Lots of people love imperatives. They love telling people uh, what to do. They love being told what to do. There are true things about you, and then there are true things about you. So here, here's in Scripture. Um, it says every single imperative, one writer says, is based on an indicative. Every command that you are given in Scripture about what to do with your life, about living your best life, every single command is based on an indicative. It's based on a truth about you. We won't get commands unless we get a why. Like before any demand of you as a follower of Jesus is made, before any demand of you is made about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the gift is offered. There is an announcement of good news that precedes any challenge. The great gospel imperatives to things like holiness are rooted in indicatives about grace that are able to sustain the weight of those imperatives. This is everywhere. Flee from sexual immorality because he says that you are bought with a price. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, love your enemies. God says, love your enemies. This is who you are. You are enemy lovers as a follower of Jesus. This is your identity. Why? Well, because you are enemies of God. You, you given to your own devices and power, will walk away and I've loved you and poured myself out for you. Even when the 10 commandments are given, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. It's preceded by God. Rest 
rescuing them and offering them grace and saying, this is how we're gonna live together. You are in Christ. You have a name. Whatever you believe about yourself is the truest thing about you. And when we believe and trust that we have been given the name above any other name and God has placed it on us and adopted us and say, you, this is who you are. It's only then that we get invitations to walk that out. This has been powerful in my own life. Recognizing over and over that the things that I need to change about who I am, the things that I want to grow in, the way I can beat myself up in a good way, like if there's a good way to beat yourself up, right? Like to name, like I'm broken in this way. I want to be more alive and more creative and more holy. I want to have less of this sin. I want to be more free. These things are rooted in who God says that I am. This is who you are. This is how we will live up to what you have already achieved. I'm being remade. I'm not who I was. I am in Christ, the scriptures say. I've been adopted. When God looks at me, God sees Christ. In Christ Jesus says you are loved by God with an inseparable love. In Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, everything you really need will be supplied. In Christ Jesus, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. In Christ Jesus, you will have eternal life. Let us live up to what we have already attained. There is a person that you already are in God's eyes, and we are learning to live like it's true. We are learning to live in to the name that we have been given. And the more and more, just like with Harper and Rowan, the more and more we hear our father call us by our name, the more and more we hear what our father says about us and that is communicated in his presence and in his word and in prayer, in the spirit, the more and more and more we find our home in him, the more and more we find ourselves transformed by him. This is why shame, by the way, has no place in the Christian journey. It's against everything Jesus is for. He says there's no condemnation, no shame, no list of what is being held against you, no record of wrongs. When you have this awareness that this is who you are, that he sees you as holy, it begins to change everything about you. Everything about you. It's funny, I was watching a video about DNA recently. And the more and more they're discovering about DNA, the more they learn about your DNA makeup, the number one question that they just keep asking as they're learning more and more and more and more is how will this impact you? How will this new find impact? Now that we know this about how you're already hardwired and who you are, how you're, how you're built, how does this actually shape your personality and shape your perspective and shape how you're, who you're becoming? How? And so when Jesus says, I, when God speaks to Jesus and says, you are a new creation, I want to rewire and rework. This is who you ultimately are. This is why baptism is the symbol of I'm going down into the water and being raised back up into new life. And so some of us need to be reminded of how God sees you of how this new information will impact you about who you are. The more you learn about your true self, the more you learn about your spiritual makeup, the more you are rebirthed and reborn and reconciled and renewed. The first Christians literally went around telling people to repent and return to God, like return to the source, return to who you were created to be. 
They insisted that people could count themselves dead to sin and alive in God. Which for those of us who have some sin in their life, anybody has some brokenness in their life right now? This has huge implications for us when we do stumble, when we do sin. We admit it. We confess it. We thank God that we're forgiven. We make amends with anyone who has been affected by your actions and you move on. Not because your sin isn't serious, but because you're taking serious, you're taking seriously who God says that you are. You're taking seriously who God says that you are. It's not that sin shouldn't be taken seriously. It's just that we want to take even more seriously who God says that we are in him. The point isn't our failure. The point isn't all the ways that your identity is jacked up. It's in God's success in making you into the person he intended you to be. God's strength, not mine. God's power, not mine. How will this information about who you are in him impact who you are becoming. Part of my family is a follower of Jesus. I know that I am loved and made in his image. I know that I've been given a name. I know that in our family, we don't fear death because we have a hope. I know that in my family, we are rooted in a deep sense of who we are and we are loved. The problem with this message and any message around this is pretty simple. Everybody can go, cool, God sees me as his kid. Almost as if it's the same way of like, cool, I know that like dad and mom like gave birth to me. And I don't actually live into and trust the good things and beautiful things that have been spoken over me. It's sort of like this stagnant fact. The reality is, is you can be born by somebody and then walk away. The reality is, is you can say, yes, I am a child of God and that feels really good, but we don't delve into the depths of how that might shape us. This isn't just like self-talk, but you wake up in the morning and you trust that I'm an heir with God. What? I don't know how that idea would affect you. That maybe sounds so fantastical and ridiculous, but what does it mean when, when my daughter plays princess? I like to remind her, and don't judge me. I know this is like cheesy pastor dad thing. But I'm just like, hey, you know what? You really are a princess in a way. Come on. Some of you are rolling your eyes so hard. But I actually believe it's true. This all comes back down to faith. When we trust, why we start with the gospel, we trust that God is king. And we want it, God, you're a king over my life. I'm dying to myself. I'm stepping into that family. It says you've adopted me. I just need to say yes to that adoption. He's inviting you to live into who you are, to who he says that you are, chosen, not forsaken, alive, free in ways you might not even own or realize. I know I've shared this story, like I think it's like every year I share this story, but it's like the best picture I have of just like, when that adoption happens, my friend adopting these teenage kids, it took them so long to begin to trust that they were gonna be fed and that there was a roof over their head and they didn't have to run away and they didn't have to act out and they could actually trust that the parents weren't gonna ghost on them. It took them so long. Why? They had years of going in one direction, years of being discipled and shaped in who their identity actually was. 
Oh, well, but the goodness of God, like the goodness of that family, actually, they would keep saying things like, no, 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 we are Smiths. This is what's good. We are Smiths. We're always going to be here. We're Smiths. There's going to be food in the fridge. And so on an earthly family level, they were just, they had to lean in and trust and allow that to shape and their behavior got better and their grades got better and their future got better because they began to trust the covering that was over them. How much more with God? How much more? How much more? How much more? We find peace not by rearranging the circumstances of your life, but by realizing who you are at the deepest level. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, you have shown such mercy to us, rescued us from sin, Declare that we are free and alive and whole. Declare that we are yours and a part of your family. And so I pray over my sisters and brothers who come from some jacked up family situations. They've been told so many things about who they are that are not true. Not that they are not loved. They are not forgiven. They're never gonna be good enough. They don't have what it takes. Lord, I pray that your spirit right now would speak life and truth over them. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who have been followers of you for a long time and have taken like their, their badge. They've taken their name for granted. They have, not do, they have not allowed themselves to dive in to the riches that they have in you. And I pray, Lord, that today would be the beginning in this new season of exploring and trusting more of who you say, that they would not rely, have their identity relying on how things are going. Like, like things are going well in part because of you and then we have taken for granted, some of us, who we are and whose we are. And so I pray, Lord, for holy reminders this week as we go. I pray as we are tested, as we find ourselves beaten down, as we find ourselves kicked out, as we find ourselves wanting to wrap up our identity and how good and accomplished we are, Lord, we would be reminded, Lord, of who we truly are, that we would be free in a way that no one else in this city is free, that we would be alive, untethered by the things that want to pull us back into our old selves in a way, Lord, that no one else around us is. Lord Jesus, we thank you thank you for these reminders. In Christ's name, everybody said. Will you stand? Let's sing together as we close.